Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Welcome to the podcast. Will you share your first and last name and your pronouns to get us started? Um, thanks for having me, Sarah. Um, my name is Shade Weitzel and I am she, her. Awesome. So Shade, I want to talk about self-regulation in dogs because people ask me about this all the time. And it's something that you and I have talked about. I think you have a really good understanding of it. And I think we should start though, by defining it. Like what, what does this mean? What does it mean for a dog to exhibit self-regulation? What are we talking about? Um, I think it's an excellent thing, and whenever we talk about something, we do have to define it to make sure we're on the the same page talking conversation-wise, but also make sure we're on the same page so that our audience knows what we're talking about. Um, So I think of self-regulation as maybe a a good word is self-control, though, you know, (laughs) everybody has things about how they call stuff. But anyway, so I think of it in terms of two ways. Uh, and one is, one is the dog is is um, like a predator uh, controlling itself. So so think of it in in one way of the dog uh, the dog or the predator has an external thing that they have to control themselves to get. So in the presence of like a prey ob- object or a trigger or something like that. Um, there's more of a, I hate to use the word drive, but more of like a, for the sake of talking about it, I think I wanna, what I'm saying is I want it in two separate categories. One is like for the prey object or the predator going after something at once. And then one is like an operant thing. Am I making sense? Okay, so let me me try to, there are kind of different scenarios here and different things we can talk about and gosh it is so hard to talk about stuff without labels like drive and and even self-control right and self-regulation so i I feel like self-control is a is a label that i might not want to bring up you know yeah so i think let's look at it in um in scenarios so you had brought up like a predator prey type of scenario yes so when an animal is in the interest of catching prey to survive. Yes. They learn how to self-regulate in order to gather. Yes. So they learn by trial and error how to self-regulate to get that food that they need to survive. 
So if you think about, okay, so just um, one good example is um, my little kitten, when he was learning how to, when he was just noticing stuff out in the yard, he would see bugs and he would pounce on them. And it was absolutely adorable because his little butt would start wagging and his little tail <laughs> would start twitching. And he, he would just be like that for like 30 seconds. I'm about to pounce, I'm about to pounce, I'm about to pounce. And then of course he would lose whatever he was pouncing at because all of his, his, his focus and his energy was not contained. Maybe that's another label. Sure. Um, and so now if you watch the hunting cat, there's none of that adorable butt twitching mm-hmm. because all of his energy and focus is calm and still with nothing excess going out. So, so maybe that's a good way to talk about it. It's more focused, it's more calm. Think of a cat stalking in a straight line. Um, think of you know the, the predator thinking of like a mountain lion or a, um, not so much a, a lion, but the cheetah maybe, trying to get close to the prey. That stereotypical um, slow walk, yeah. the animal had to learn to do that by trial and error, that that was how to control themselves, that was gonna get them closer. And then you were kind of thinking there's a whole other branch to this. Like we need to, in order to look at it in dogs. Yes. Is what we care about is like, it, what we care about is like control yourself at access points to things that you want. That's what, right. that's what we care about. And we can train all of those things with a clicker and food. Right. But do they learn the same thing as they do if they learn it kind of of their own volition? Like you may not even be a, appear to be controlling the environment for them. You just are. Right. So it's a difference. So if we're talking about, if we're thinking about self-regulation, I, I think maybe it's helpful to think of it as in, as it applies to our dogs and our, our, our everyday lives, thinking of it as something the dog does themselves that we then reward rather than the dog, us cueing uh, behavior. So like us not putting external control on the dog, the dog basically control, I, I, I can't talk about this without using labels. But <laughs> well, we, can, we can say behaviors because I think anything that you do to them, whether that's click and treat or pop yeah. on a prong, yeah. is external control. Yeah, so anything, if we're saying sit, that's external control. Yes. If we're you know, blurry, it's external control. If we're collar popping, it's external control. Um, but it, I'm thinking of it also more as like, okay, so take the example of the dog, the dog wanting to greet somebody. Like we're all doing that is the puppies. Okay, so the puppies wanna greet people. They wanna be all excited and they're all butt wiggly about it. I would like that dog to learn to offer four feet on the ground. I don't even care about a sit but I want the dog to learn to offer a moment of stillness with all four feet on the ground, and then it gets what it wants. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is teaching self-regulation. So eventually it would be, we, we, wait, we put duration on what the dog offers themselves, okay? I, the little puppy's like, I wanna go see that dog friend, or I wanna go see that person, and they offer four feet on the floor, still for a second, okay, now you can go say hi. Mm-hmm. Well, the person comes near him and then we put duration on that 
versus saying sit or teaching stuff. So there's two things also we need to think about. Uh, saying sit to greet or also teaching with food when really what the dog wants is the greeting. Okay, so there's two different things there scenario wise that yeah. I can go down the rabbit hole on as well. <laughs> well, I well, I think this conversation is literally just rabbit hole after rabbit hole, but um, I think you just hit on to me what the difference is. Yes. Is that truly teaching, teaching true self-control or self-regulation utilizes the functional reinforcer Yes. That the dog was after in the first place, yeah. rather than our um, contrived reinforcers or or punishers, whatever you know, whatever it is, we are actually utilizing the thing the dog wanted in the first place. Right. So maybe that's a really important point, and kind of goes back to the little cat. The cat wants yes. the prey instinct. So maybe they're not different at all. Maybe it's that um, the dog wants something and needs to, it's just very simple. The dog needs to learn how to self-control themselves, usually with a little more, with behaviors that we don't label as hectic and frantic, mm -hmm. or, you know, and we can go into what that looks like, but basically the, the dog gets the functional reinforcer that they want without anything that we, without a lot of the things that we tend to think about that we use to train behaviors, like yeah. food or toy or whatever. Yeah, so, and, um... Going back to your kitten, that looks a lot like a puppy that's wiggling up to a person. Mm -hmm. There, it's like their body tells is is like bubbling over with emotion, right. and therefore you see a lot of movement. Right. And so it's kind of like you know what they're. I'm not a neuroscientist, obviously, or I would use right. better words right now. But <laughs> what, their, what their little nervous system is causing them to do is like bounce around, whatever. Right. The actual Ooh. outcome, the actual thing that they wanted in the first place, if that thing requires them to control that, they can learn how to. Right. Right. Um, so, like, you'll get behaviors like the bouncing and the wiggling. You'll get vocalization. You'll get all those behaviors that. I wouldn't term under self-control. So Right. That's just spewing out. That's just all of your feelings coming out right. as exactly. actions, right? Exactly. Which is adorable, but super cute. But then at some point <laughs> it's <laughs> adorable, but not necessarily what we want the dog to learn from one, the headspace I want my dog to be in. And also for the concept that I want my dog to understand that, okay, I hold myself back or I control myself, I'm, I'm, I use the word calm a lot. And one day I got to really sit down and figure out what, what the label Operationalized calm, <laughs> yes. you know? But I, I, w I want those behaviors we're labeling as, as calm and still, uh, stillness uh, to get what they want, the functional reinforcer, yeah. And you, you just said a word that I think is really important for us to talk about here because when our clients come to us and they've got, you know, their dog has kind of a series of issues that we see, like the dog bolts through doors, maybe, you know, in my world, they can't hold their start line stay. Right. They also typically are dragging their owner to the ring. Yep. Might be barky lungy at other dogs and do not have a down stay. I'll never forget actually, when you went and did a seminar with a bunch of agility people, it was early when they first started to ask you because I was telling them, 
want to talk about toys, get shade. <laughs> and you were like, why do none of these people have a downstay? <laughs> and I was like, because in agility culture, nobody does. Um, and we go, okay, there's a core concept missing. And yeah. that is that self-regulation concept. For us, this isn't about behaviors. This isn't about, I want XYZ behaviors need to be trained because if it were about XYZ behaviors need to be trained, we could just train it with food. It's not, a, you know, and it would right. go faster and it would be less frustrating for both of us, right? right. But it's a and concept. I, yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's a concept that maybe it's a reinforcement concept that there's um, reinforcement out there that um, we're not taking advantage of. So we're thinking reinforcement has to be in terms of things we control. Whereas I oftentimes want to think of functional rewards for the dogs. I guess that's the right word. Uh, and I think that's important. One, it's an important concept that dogs and trainers need to learn, but it's really important for the dog to learn that there's other things out there to control themselves with. I think that dog trainers usually refer to this as the pre-MAC principle. They're not entirely yeah. correct because actually everything is the pre-MAC principle, but when dog trainers talk about the pre-MAC principle, this is what they mean. They mean using the thing in the environment that the dog wanted, like the squirrel or whatever, to reinforce the behaviors that they asked for. And I think usually dog trainers mean releasing the dog to do the naughty thing that we don't want them to do after they do the thing that we want. I personally choose not to utilize it like that. Like I never want, I'm never going to cue you to chase deer. That's never going to happen. Right. right. You don't actually yeah. put that in your repertoire. Um, I don't want you to rehearse right. that behavior. <laughs> Literally. No, I want zero hunting behaviors rehearsed. I, right. Right. And I, people, um, call me out on that and say, we'll get a terrier Sarah and then we can talk, but okay. Like, and I, fair. I don't right. have one of those dogs, but for me, it is about kind of showing the dog this concept again and again and again. Yes. That when you seem to not be able to get the thing that you want, your best bet is actually to take that breath, offer stillness, offer holding back, offer, offer holding back, right? Give that a try because that's not anything that your brain is telling you is a good right. idea. So that's an that's kind of an important point there where you're thinking about, um, and especially maybe we should talk a little bit about the types of dogs we have and look for in our sports are the types of dogs that when they want something, we do want the type of dog that goes and gets it. You know, we yes. want the type of dog that persists. We want the type of dog that's not afraid to push barriers, that is is jumpy. You know, we want that that pushy personality, but I think it's, and so we breed that because that's what we want for our sports. But I think that it's double important, super important for these types of dogs to learn this because that helps us in training. And in my experience, it doesn't hinder the, the ability to then get the pushiness. So in my world, I'm always fighting against people thinking that if they put control on the dog's pushiness, the behaviors we want for sports, then we're gonna kill the drive or the dog's not gonna be as motivated enough. And maybe that is people's experience if they are putting an external thing on the dog to get that control. And my experience is different because I want the dog to offer that self-control to then get the thing I want. 
So that may be the difference that we're seeing because I don't see any loss in, in pushiness and motivation in my dogs that I'm also expecting to be still have still front feet in this start we have we have sort of the equivalent of start line stays in, in protection work mm -hmm. um and i expect you to be still i expect your butt not to raise i expect no tail wags i expect you to be totally still in that situation so i want the dog to learn that as a concept before i name it yeah that's a difference i think there's well, you said a lot of things, but the one thing to circle back to, I think that's very important, is it is true when we select dogs that are sportier. Yes. They don't have a lot of this naturally. Right. And so we need to put it in them. Whereas if you have a golden retriever bred for service work, you probably do need to do less of this. Right. Right. And you probably do need to do more of bringing the pushiness out of yes. that dog. So I don't think there is, because everybody likes a recipe, right? So they're going to listen to this podcast and go, here's what I do. Right. No, you have to look at your situation. So I look at my, each dog I raise, the situation. I didn't try to teach Rhea to wait at the back door until I saw that she started to care about the back door. Like, right. Right? So I just don't. I do things as the dog shows me they need that thing done. Yes. Yeah. And it's very dog dependent and um, it's very team dependent. And some people need to work more on the motivation. I mean, if we want to go there, they need to work on more on motivating their dog. Um, the dog has to be motivated and care about what the reward is, the function, the reinforcement. Um, and then others, when we have pushy dogs, those dogs need to learn this concept and it's harder for them. Yeah, I, in hidden potential seminars, do things with those dogs to bring pushiness out of them. Right. That then when I, mutual friend of ours brought their um, bitey dog, their Malinois to my hidden potential seminar, just cause she wanted to work with me. I was in town. <laughs> Boy, we got some different things out of that exercise. <laughs> from right, the dog. Right. It did not go well, that was not smart. <laughs> I should have right. given her an entirely different thing to do in that session. Right. <laughs> and she didn't need any of the pushiness. She already well, had she it. didn't. And she also had a history of thinking that certain scenarios were meant different things to her right. than, you know, any of these other dogs versus I've got like an Italian greyhound that actually pushed into a Kleenex box to get a cookie. And it was like a huge deal. Right. So right. we're going to, you always need to look at what dog you're training. Right. Right. So what are some of the ways that you introduce this concept? You've got a young puppy. What are some of the ways that you introduce it? And what tells you that it's time to introduce it? So first of all, before we get into that, and I totally want to answer that and go talk about that forever, I do want to put out that there's a huge genetic component to this, even with our pushy, bitey dogs. And right now i have two my my two working dogs are very have very different genetics on this on their ability to do it mm. so discounting any learned history um dogs come with a certain i think you said you know you referenced that it might be harder for the um dog for the for the type of dogs we want for our sports the pushy dogs let's just call them pushy yeah. the pushy dogs we want for our sports our fast sports where we want power and speed. 
there is a genetic component that the, it's hard for the dogs brain-wise and mentally-wise to do that. However, there are certainly dogs that are pushy and motivated that can also very quickly give you this self-control, this self-regulation. Oh, okay. yes. Does I that mean, make sense? There are so, six border collies in my house. Yeah. The ability to do this, the natural ability to do this, to learn this, like how the pace at which they learn this and the amount that they remember it. Yes. Varies a lot because the genetics vary a lot. Right. Six dogs, yeah. Right. So there's learned history and at a certain point we can't really say, you know, different, you know, what, what we can't piece that out. But it's very interesting to me that I tried to do this. I bred my eight-year-old dog once, and I distinctly remember when they were, um, they used to be in their little whelping box and I would let them out to eat and they were behind an X-Pen. I distinctly remembering for the pup, uh, waiting for the puppies to sit and then giving them their food when they sat or kept four feet on the floor or whatever. And I mean, so once my dog has had that kind of concept training from day one and he is, not good at it genetically. So it's very interesting to me how the different genetics still affects his ability to do that. And I have to constantly, it's a maintenance thing with the dogs that don't genetically go there very quickly. So I just wanted to point out that that's a huge genetic thing. Genetics matter so much. And yes, we're not just talking breeds. We're talking within breeds. Yes. And yeah, if getting to know the parents of the dogs, the grandparents of the dogs, if you can, that you are seeking a puppy from, might give you some of this information. Might. Right. right. Okay, so what's the question you asked me before I went down that rabbit hole? That's totally fine. Rabbit holes are expected and good. Um, I want to talk about practically. Okay. We've talked conceptually a lot. Let's talk practically. How do you introduce this concept? You've got a new puppy. What is your, how do you know what to introduce and when, and like, and what are some of the things you do? So I think this fits into the definition. Um, so the very first thing I do with my puppies, it is literally the first thing. Um, actually, the first thing would be teaching them to eat food. Okay. Eat food from my hand. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's assume that they've got that reinforcement. They know that I have yummy treats and they can eat it and they want it. Okay. So once I've established that, uh, so I've got something they want, I want eye contact from the dog. Mm. And I want, I, I don't want to cue it. I don't want to tell the dog to watch me. I don't want to lure them to watch me. So I, I literally, the first thing I do is I just take the dog, I, I show the dog I have food and I hold it to the side so that it's a little higher. So it's not comfortable for them to jump, but they might jump. And I do this with my puppies, but I also, did this for 20 years through every single person that walked through the door. So uh, no matter how old their dog was, providing it wanted food and could concentrate a little bit, um, we went through this uh, exercise. And what I'm looking for is for the dog to stop trying to get the food. So I'm not holding the food way up. I'm normally holding it so it's sort of within the reach of the dog so that the dog can sort of try to jump for it a little bit. It's usually above nose height, lick it, lick at it. And I just make sure that I hold my hand so they can't get it. And then what happens is eventually the dog stops doing that. Now, if I were a good trainer, I could reward the stop trying to get it out of my hand. 
But my experience has been that it's better for dog and human team. And this is not just me, but this is everybody, our most clients that walk through your door. My experience has been that we really need a black and white behavior for the dog to do, i.e. look you in the eyes, and also for the person to mark. Mm. And so what happens is the dog tries to get the food, tries and tries and tries, and then kind of glances up at you. You mark that, now you get the very food that you were trying to get. So if I'm using my terminology right, there's a bit of extinction going on there mm -hmm. as the dog is trying to get the food. And I want that. I, the reason I brought this up is that I want the dog to learn this. So I think this is kind of, I mean, this would be under our definition of self-regulating, mm -hmm. right? It would. I want the dog to learn. I'm going to try to get it. I'm going to try to get it, try to get it. I can't get it. So I'm going to hold myself back, do a black and white behavior, and then I get it. And I want the dog to learn that concept. And I am not telling them to look at me. I'm not telling them to stop jumping. And I really like it when they try to jump and mouth my hand because I want them to understand that that type of behavior doesn't work in this context, in this instance. Am I making sense? You are. Okay. So let's talk for a second about the extinction piece because you're correct. Um, I think people get really confused about what extinction is. So yes. it is simply what happens when expected reinforcement does not show up. So if the first thing you teach them is eat from my hand and then there's right. food in hand, food in hand is a cue to eat from hand. Right. And then you teach, you put them deliberately into an extinction trial to teach them how now to get the food from your hand. Right. And I want you to talk about the value of that extinction trial for you because I know this is where pushback will come in from yes. our positive reinforcement community. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, yes. And I have, I mean, I've evolved as a trainer or I've changed as a trainer and I always try to think of the things that I used to do and make sure they're within how I train now. Am I holding on to something, you know, that I used to do 20 years ago? Is that still valuable? And over and over, I still come to the conclusion that this is a valuable thing for dogs to learn. And I wouldn't teach it in maybe a kinder way. I want that extinction. And I, I want the dog to struggle. And I want them to try something and not have it work. Now, when I say struggle, I don't mean... I don't want them to struggle for 30 minutes trying to get it out of your hand. Right, so, right. There's always going to be the outlier stuff that happens that I'm going to go, well, this is not working. We need to, you sure. know, help this dog out. Okay. Um, but the majority of dogs will learn this in literally two minutes. Yeah. Okay. It, much, much faster for the most, vast majority. So I want them to learn that when they want something to, to not go for it. I, I guess that's what I'm teaching. Yes. So I think what's happening is that, again, we need to separate the concept from the behavior you're training. Because yes. could you train the dog to wait to eat the food when cued? Of course you could. Yes. And I do. I famously like have kind of said, I don't use it your choice type procedures. Right. Um, what you are teaching them, I think, is when you have that feeling, your best bet is to look at me instead. Yes. 
right? And you're just exactly. the route you're choosing with it. And I yeah. do think there's maybe a little bit of um, being informed by the dog that you are teaching. Yes. If I were, if I had retrievers, for instance, I probably would do it exactly like this. <laughs> it is so easy to punish eating in general yeah. in border collies. Yeah. That I get a little worried about. Yeah. So if, and that's where you have to be to look at the dog in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, and to, I mean, that's where they have to want what you have. They have to understand the eating part of it. And that has to be, you know, we take eating treats for granted so yeah. much. And it's really important that that be a top behavior and, and that that dog understand. Um, now, the things I do do nowadays to make this easier is that I do have different hand positions on don't eat the food versus do eat the food. Yes, and okay. so I'm much clearer now. Uh, so my puppy would have actually never gotten food in the hand position that I would hold for this test. Yeah. When I'm teaching. You are not presenting the same cue. The exactly. Same cue. You're presenting a slightly different cue with like, you know, there are things that are similar. Yes. Yeah. So the food is in the hand, but when I'm feeding puppies, I have my palm flipped over kind of an it's your choice. You're now allowed to take it from my palm. Mm -hmm. um, and when I'm doing the eye contact exercise, I did, I very much have my hand in a different position. Mm -hmm. And so that may make it easier for our dogs nowadays, the trainer I am today, in that what we're doing is then distinguishing to the dog the, the signal of eat food is when my hand is held in this position and, and down by your face. So from a kinder way, that is. However, I still want the dog to go through a little bit of trying to get the food, trying to get the food. So let's switch. They don't to get the concept if they're not. If right. you hold it up and they go and they give up or they sniff or they whatever, yeah. they're not learning the thing you want them to learn. Exactly. Except the concept requires that little bit of struggle. Ex yes, exactly. So another example that I have tried to evaluate and tried to evaluate in my, okay, I used to do this 20 years ago. Is this still okay? Does this still fit the trainer I am today? Is jumping. Let's talk about puppy jumping. Mm -hmm. And I'll probably get some pushback on this as well. And it's okay, because it is. I, again, with the jumping, I want the dog to try behaviors and not get my attention. So first of all, I look at what the dog wants. And most dogs, when they're jumping on us, want our attention. So they're, and let's just take owner. Let's not take stranger jumping. Let's take, we've had our puppy for two weeks. We, all good things are coming from us. And the dog really wants, they love us. They like us. We're, we're source of good stuff for them. And they start jumping on us. Now, I don't really care about dogs jumping on me as a behavior because I think that's owner dependent on whether they want dogs jumping on them or not. But I want the concept of the dog wanting something they that I have, my affection or my physical touch, I want them to learn to hold themselves back, feed on the floor for that behavior. And in the process, I'm going to let my dog jump all over me, okay? Mm -hmm. So I come through, I let my puppy out of the crate, they jump all over me, um, and I might wait until 
they calm down for a second and then I'm going to be like, okay, now I love you. Okay. So I want that concept of them kind of trying to get my attention and learning that all those behaviors we label of vocalization, jumping, kind of more of the hectic energy type behaviors. Um, and I want those, I want none of those behaviors to get my physical affection. Now, this is going to sound like I'm so strict and I never pet my dogs unless four feet are on the floor. <laughs> and that's not in my house. <laughs> okay, That's not who I am. <laughs> my dogs get so much for free. <laughs> right. This, we're not talking that nothing in life is free. Nihilif, like old, old right. concept actually is you cue the dog. It is right. drived. It is you sit, then I open the door. It is you sit, then I pet you. Right. You are, I feel like you're, you're giving them this like broader education. And as far as here's things the puppy's likely to do that yeah. I can use my behavior to shape what I actually want to see in the future. Yes. It requires, I think, tremendous skill. Whereas walking in and kneeing the puppy that jumps on you takes no skill. Right. Right. So that's like old, that's like, you know, dog training 1.0, right? Is knee right. the puppy when he jumps on you. Then maybe 2.0 is like, tell him to sit and right. him to sit. And, and then, like what we're talking right now is 3.0, which is like, I'm just going to astutely observe your behavior. And the second that I see what I want, then I'm going to give you what you want. Then I exactly. give you what I know you wanted in the first place. Right. And again, we have to say it's dog dependent. Okay. That's so right. if I have a dog that's jumped on me for eight years, am I going to do this? No. Is this going to work? You're going to no. need to teach something else. Right. You're going to need to teach some other stuff mm -hmm. before you attempt to do this. And it's especially not going to work if it's um, a dog that tends to mouth you when it's a little bit frustrated and it's big and powerful. That's yeah, not you, can't, you can't ignore it, which right. is why you intentionally teach it when they right. are puppies and I do want to say something about ignoring ignoring does not to me ignoring doesn't mean turn around same that is a it, reaction it does not mean that I actually remove my presence exactly it doesn't mean I step back it doesn't mean I turn around yeah. it doesn't mean I cross my arms in disgust at the puppy I am trying to give as neutral of body language and emotion as possible so that the I'm I'm just there and I'm not being dispro disapproving i want to that needs to be yes i want to be neutral not like punishing and i think that really really matters um and then i also want to give the dog no reaction so that's why i don't want people right. to turn around because herding dogs love that they jump on you you turn around they go to the other side they jump on you you turn around that's You're like look at making you move too or right. if my aussie she just bites you in the ass right so that's a dog you can't do this on because of that. Yeah. <laughs> and or the typical Malinois that like climbs up you and mouths you. Okay. You can't, you can't ignore that. So yeah. true extinction, I, I think means you got to like not have it happen. You know, the dog expects your affection and you're not giving a reaction. So let's, I, again, I think that people believe that extinction and punishment are like kind of inherently interwoven but what you yeah. are saying it's not extinction is about reinforcement extinction is about reinforcement not showing up so thank you for saying that because i i get a little what's the right word i, I i'm like i i feel like this is 
not as punishing as it's not in your so let's talk about a human example because this is the one i use all the time that i think makes it very very clear to people okay <laughs> you are in the airport you just got off your plane you go to the restroom you go to the faucet and you put your hands under the thing and the water won't come out how this has happened to all of us right extremely frustrating why because you're experiencing extinction in that moment because expected reinforcement is not occurring the behavior you believe will get the water is not getting the water yeah okay so punishment would be the faucet disappears punishment would be the faucet spews out on a hot oil <laughs> like that's punishment okay yeah. Punishment, that's positive punishment. Positive punishment is it spews out hot oil. Negative punishment is it disappears entirely. Right. Extinction is just that the reinforcement you expected is not showing up. So then your behaviors change, right? You like wave different, wave faster. Wave, and like, depending on your temperament, you get more and more aggressive at this faucet right. or you go to the next faucet. Like it depends on your temperament. Right. It also depends on your learned history. It depends on your learned history because if you have this superstitious behavior installed that like, totally. that like if I wave and this one's not working, well, I'm just going to wait for her to be done with the one that is working and I'm going to go to that one, right? So if you, that, that's what's been reinforced. You'll just do that. Right. And the intermittent reinforcement of your first faucet working is what keeps you trying the first faucet. <laughs> and so we are not talking about like it is very, very different. Putting a dog in an extinction trial can be inhumane. It yep. very much depends on what's going on. Yes. But it, we need to, you need to understand it's not the same thing as a punishment procedure. Right. Which can also, there are situations in which a punishment procedure is kinder than an extinction trial. Yep, exactly. Because they're, everything is so much more complicated than four quadrants, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. And I can think of situations in my 25 years of, you know, teaching a lot of clients coming through the door of any aggressive dog that, um, that I use the eye contact extinction that I wouldn't now, you know, right. um, because it wasn't kind to that dog, something else would have been kinder, you know, um, so there's definitely examples like that. And there's always going to be outlier dogs and outlier trainer dog teams that this is not going to be an easily taught process, yeah. but for the vast majority of pretty normal dogs that have pretty normal behavior, expressions of behavior, um, this works very well and they, and, and in a slight, not a very long period of time. Okay. Um, so back to the jumping, I want the dog to learn that jumping on me doesn't work to get the physical affection. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I, I wanna talk a little bit about what I see other people doing that I think is not as effective. I'm not gonna say it's wrong because it's, you know, whatever, but I just think that we wanna teach the dog not to jump on us. If we bring food into the picture and we get the dog to sit, we're giving them food, which the dog may very much like, but in that instance, the dog wants our affection. They didn't particularly want food. Mm -hmm. so. I kind of skip the teaching them to sit for food to greet me thing because I want to go straight to one, I'm giving you no reaction. So I'm not even cueing you to sit. I'm not luring you to sit. I'm not cueing you to sit. I'm not, I don't have food on me to get you to sit. There's none of those cues to sit. Um, 
I want you to figure it out for yourself. So that might be a slight difference in what I would advise to do versus what I see kind of advised to do. I think so. And I think, um, again, we're, we keep coming back to kind of the key in teaching this, if we're going to call self-regulation a concept, a conceptual skill that we would like the dog to have, what we keep coming back to is utilizing reinforcers that exist in the environment. Right. That maybe the dog doesn't think we have any control over. That does not apply for your food in the hand situation. Right. Well, but think about it as a concept thing. Okay. So I'm teaching the puppy the concept using food that I control using food. So it's not the use of food. And in that, that's, that's problematic. It's that in that instance, when I'm teaching the eye contact, the, the puppy wants the food. But, in yeah. the instance where I'm teaching the, the puppy not to jump on me, the puppy wants my attention. And right. I'm using that and skipping teaching them to sit for food in that context. Of course, I'm teaching them to sit for food in other contexts. But when they, or even put it this way, they want outside of a door, they want access to something. I would then do the same thing. I wouldn't give, I wouldn't open the door until they self-regulate a little bit. You know, they, they want to go out. It's established. They want to go play with their dog friends. Um, I would wait for a little bit and then say, okay, now we can go out. So we really have to have the, the re it's the reinforcement procedure established for the dog before we can have this. Always, right? right? No matter what we're teaching, right? We need to know how we're going to give the dog access to, right? The thing and they have to want it, and know it. Legalizing, they have to want it, they have to know it. Like when Rhea was nine weeks old and didn't understand that the back door was a big deal, right? So of course you wouldn't even pause at the back door. You wouldn't look for any behavior I'm because she's carrying has... her through it, like right. to get her to the grass, right? right. And so <laughs> that kind of brings me to something that I think is really. I have a hard time articulating, so hopefully you can help me, <laughs> which, is we'll that, which is that um, I tend to teach my dogs these skills as they show me they're capable of these skills. So like, for instance, I'm not going to introduce, well, I'll, I'll use crating as an example. I am not going to expect you to wait quietly at a crate until, you know, while hard things are happening, until yes. you've demonstrated to me the ability to do so in yes. other contexts. And that feels backwards to people because they're like, well, how do I teach them the thing if you're only teaching the thing once they already know how to do the thing? <laughs> right. And crating is a, you know, everybody has very strong opinions about puppies screaming in crates and things yes. like that. Um, and then I will admit the trainer I used to be would, you know, let them cry it out. Um, and I just wouldn't do that anymore and didn't do it with my latest puppy. Um, and so there's that they, they can't, when they're eight weeks old, they're, they're two months old. They're babies. They're literally baby mammals crying out in distress. Right. So right. we can't expect our, it is, it is so bad for them. I think exactly. It's so hard for them. It's so bad for them. Cause it's not a self-regulation question. <laughs> it's not different shade from like, if you, somebody shows up to your, place to train and they just got their dog five days ago from a hoarding situation and the dog was starving yeah are you gonna do cookie in the hand look at my yeah. dog 
no, you're not. No. This dog is starving. You're going to turn them around and say, get the dog healthy and no longer starving. Right. Here's how to do that. And then we'll and, talk, right? Like, right. And here's a very specific cue on how to eat. So that becomes very clear. Yes. You know, I'm going to put a lot of stuff in place before I would ever ask that dog to control itself around food. Right. And so like, for instance, um, we have talked about nail trims as a really interesting, you know, piece of dog husbandry that you can do many different ways. Right. And so for me, the trainer I am right now today wants to show my dog kind of the concept of forced restraint via nails mm -hmm. and wants that to be non-traumatic. Yeah wants that to be actually easy for them to overcome, which means that I am not necessarily going to hold my ground and do every single toenail every single time I sit down. I'm gonna kind of go, you know, and can we do three today? And can we do four today? And it's, you don't show me that we can't do four by, you know, wiggling and screaming and whatever. You show me we can't do four, like I did, I have a video of it actually, I put it in Patreon of doing uh, Dremeling Reyes toenails because I'm introducing the Dremel. I've been cutting them, introducing the Dremel. And I did a whole nail and she's kind of looking at the foot and looking at me like, that's weird. And then, and then I feed her and then I go to Dremel another one and she kind of looks at it and looks at me and is like, are you really gonna do another one? <laughs> and I was like, and eh, maybe not today. And then put her down. Like, it's not that she fought me and then didn't do it, but I'm right. kind of going, okay, one, is your comfort level right now. So right. talk about nails a little bit. So so what behavior, let's piece, piece out what you just said. What behavior are you looking for from Rhea that shows you that she's self-regulating? Excellent, so thank you. Because, because the other thing you mentioned and- I totally said forced restraint, yes. You did. So you're not meaning that in this situation or are you meaning that? So let me tell, let me define that. Let me actually because say Because boy, we're going to talk about extinction and forced restraint. <laughs> so here's what I mean. Hold the puppy. Yeah. Hold the puppy's foot. Puppy is doing normal puppy wiggling. Puppy stops doing normal puppy wiggling. I cut, I usually do give them a piece of food, cut piece of food. Um, and then I'm still holding them. So they're kind of going to go and they're going to wiggle again. And then they stop. So when I see this really nice, they begin to stop wiggling at all. Yeah. Then I'm going to, then I'm going to be done for the day. Like they, they begin to stop wiggling at all. I know that we're in a good place here. If I start it, I've had a puppy that had like a literal panic the first time right. I tried to do this. And then I had to completely rethink everything. And I did rethink everything for him and trained him cooperatively. Um, right. But what I'm looking for is that offer of stillness that I'm looking for. I'm literally just going to call it. The dog gave up. Right. They stopped trying to fight me. Right. So you're putting restraint on the puppy, gentle holding, mm -hmm. and you're waiting for the puppy to give up and, and take a deep breath and say, oh, okay, I, I give up. I stop struggling. Yes. Is that what you're saying? And I need to have the caveat because I can already hear right. the messages. Well, I'm going to give you support because I do this. 
intentionally to you my dog. You do, and you, I think you're really smart about why you do it, which is why we're going to talk about it. Yes. I want to have the caveat that for me, panic is never acceptable. Yes. So if my dog, exactly. When there's true panic, I am going to, I just said, I've raised one puppy that showed me true panic at this. Right. And I completely rerouted, did right. everything different. Right. So, and I think that whenever we're talking about any of this kind of stuff, we always need to say there's going to be outlier behaviors yes. yeah. that are not okay to exhibit. And if we see any of the outlier behaviors, however we explain it, and, and panic is one, um, then we're going to go, oh my gosh, this is not the right, this, this, right. this is too much. This is, this is beyond normal behavior. Panic. True, true aggression. I mean, actually. So I've come across a couple true aggressive puppies at this age, mm -hmm. at eight weeks old. And I actually, I don't know what I would do now, but I did because it's relatively. The universe will just send you one. So don't say that. Say you right. know what you would do. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I think I still would want to extinguish a little bit of that. And I, I would try to hold it in a way. I you think disagree. I don't disagree. I think yeah. that that's a tough, that's a, but it is an outlier. So it's yeah. not necessarily what we're talking about. Right. Exactly. Um, and I would put, the other thing is whenever I see something like this with dogs, um, whenever I'm doing something that might be, you know, I, I mean, maybe we're not being the kindest if I want my German shepherd puppy at eight weeks old to learn to give up under restraint. Okay. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm not being the kindest, but it is a behavior I want him to learn. Where was I going with this? It's a behavior I want him to learn um, because it's actually very valuable as they get older and more powerful. I guess what I kind of want to bring up is I want the dog to learn the behavior when they're young and I can give them a very neutral holding with no effect. Yeah. So the really, you're saying maybe this isn't the kindest and I'm saying it's a hell of a lot kinder than you've got an adult dog that can't yes. be restrained at the vet. Right. Which we want to have the ability to restrain our adult dogs. And at that point we can't restrain them because they're too strong and powerful or may bite us. Right. And so I'm not interested in, um, I'm actually, for some reason, just having a flashback to, um, I watched a person, um, choke a puppy that she bred um till she was like blue like tongue blue because she tried to bite her during nail trims yeah and growing up in dog shows i'd like to say that's the one time i saw it yeah. <laughs> i'd like to say <laughs> hanging puppies off grooming tables is uh, is an outlier it's not right. Right. i think what's important for us to say to for us to kind of get clear about is the fact that we're not in inducing panic ever right we are, I think, and I want your opinion on this because I feel as though I split during these processes. Like I am not going to push you to bite me. I am going to hold you as much as I think I can hold you to get you to be successful at giving up rather right. than, so like Felix does understand how to be restrained by me now. Right. Um, but he is the puppy that panicked when I tried to restrain him for nails. Right. And so he can now be restrained by me now or by Leslie for a veterinary procedure. And 
teaching him that required a lot of splitting because I wasn't going to wrestle him. Right, exactly. Right? So I think we can, but it was still an extinction process. It still was. This is happening. And the sooner you give up, the sooner it's not happening. Right. And it, I wish that I had, that I had tried to split it down and do it when he was a baby rather than I just kind of went, well, I know a lot about training cooperative care. Like I've got friends that are training it on dolphins for crying out loud. Like I can teach him. (laughs) to to have restraint free blood draws and whatever and you know come to find out our dogs actually need to be restrained sometimes so they do (laughs) do we want to talk about a fish hook (laughs) (laughs) that's right Shane's dogs just had to have a fish hook pulled from his foot at a seminar my god what a nightmare and he dealt really well with the restraint dealt really well with it and he may not have if he wasn't a dog that had this education and so restraint actually giving up under restraint and kind of allowing veterinary procedures like let's talk about the height of self-regulation like not defending yourself when you are worried somebody's hurting you like that's got to be part of this concept I'm not sure but I think it is so I think the part of the concept is and I actually want to get back to your nail trends but I think what you just so in terms of like veterinary care and part of the concept is that you want the dog for its own health and safety later on. You want them to learn to be restrained. Um, Now my brain went to your nail trim thing. Go go with the nail trim. Go with the nail trim. I am assuming that before you're doing Rhea's nails, you have taught her that that a little bit of restraint, you've taught her to, that you hold her, she's still, and you let go. Yes. So you've already taught her that part. Yes, part of the splitting, I guess, of the procedure, yeah. So I restrain you a little bit as gently and as neutrally as I can. I'm not like holding you down. I'm not choking you. I'm not doing anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just making a cage around your body and you go, and you can feel that when you have hands on the dog and you, and the dog goes, does takes that deep breath and is still and not um, stiff in its body. and then you let them go. Okay, so they've got that learning on board. Now, now you take something they don't necessarily wanna be done to them. Am I on the right track here? Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, okay, I'm gonna hold your foot and I'm gonna wait for you to stop doing the sort of jerking back, the sort of struggling. And are you not doing the nail trim until the dog is still right there? I knew you were gonna pull this out. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. do yes i am waiting until they're still to do to proceed with the nail trim and that is an interesting almost you know flipping the reinforcement on its head it stems from practicality i don't want to cut you wrong yep i need you still in order to do this correctly um and it's almost like i'm i think it comes back to then later i'm not going to stick you with the needle while you're squirming either Right. When you're still, like the next and next and next steps occur and eventually. So if we're looking at this purely from, okay, the animal is being restrained and wants to be let go, you're actually punishing the stillness by doing the thing the animal doesn't want to do. Totally. But but I want to bring in the fact that there's a little bit of self-control there from the dog. And 
con uh, labels again. Um, the dog is, is I, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb. I feel like the dog feels more in control. Am I, am I totally, they're going, okay. Actually, yes, because it's kind of like, I've had to have a lot of really terrible medical procedures. And I, one of, one recent one, um, I'll just tell you, it was a surgical drain removal. Okay, so when you have Which to have the drain- It just sounds horrendous. It's horrendous. It does not, it's not good. Not a good, it's the, the end reinforcement of no longer having a drain is enormous. However, <laughs> the moment- That's way <laughs> right. right. And I had this really wonderful surgeon who was removing it and he, I, he could tell that I was starting to ramp up. Like I was starting to get like my breathing change and like, he knows I have a history of panic attacks actually in medical situations. Yeah. And he just stopped and went, well, you can have a minute. Right. right. So then I take my minute, I breathe, I get back to a point and I go, okay, do it. And, and so you were in control of that start. I was in control. And I think you're so right. I've never thought about it like this, but I think the dog offering that stillness is like, okay, do the thing. Right. They're like, okay, I need a moment. Uh, I need a moment. Yeah. Okay. Now do the thing that I'm expecting to be done. You know? Yes. They've already seen it. That's why they don't start to like fight about the nail habit, like until they know. Right. <laughs> they know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, totally. You you are putting them a little bit in control. Yeah, so I feel like in that situation, they are a little bit in control. Oh, that's interesting. And we need to take the space. So I have a wonderful vet who said she had to learn that with the dogs. And she had to learn that some breeds of dogs, in particular German Shepherds, need a moment where they're like, they stop struggling and they're like, okay. And then she could just do it. And she was bringing it up to me because she was like, you think it takes longer, but it actually doesn't. Right. And it, because when you wait for the dog to go, okay, I'm not struggling anymore. I'm not like freaking out anymore. Then, then you can actually get more, much more done. And you can really get a lot done the second time that dog comes in, you know? So it's well worth giving the dog a moment for that. Are we still talking about self-regulation? That's what I was going to ask you now. <laughs> I was going to say, let's, let's round this out. I actually think self-regulation is a concept they need for, yes. for husbandry. Yes. But we started talking about it as a concept that is helpful to us in our sport training. Yes. And in living with the dog on a day-to-day -day basis. Because you want that concept of, so let's just think of it as reinforcement. Dog wants the reinforcer, learns to offer holding back, not going for it, whatever that looks like mm -hmm. to get the reinforcer. Yes. I think that that's, that's it. That's the concept. The concept is you want the thing. You're having that feeling of not knowing how to get the thing. Right. That's the cue. If we want to be, if we want to be honest, like we're, we're saying it's offered. That means we are not cueing it with our words or body language necessarily. And the right. dog is being cued to try that by that feeling of, I want to get the thing. How do I get the thing? They start to maybe be a little bit stressed, a little bit frustrated. I think that if you gave me an airport faucet that worked like this, the more frantic you get with the hands, the less likely you are, you are to get water. Yeah. Yes. 
I would approach it and I would take a deep breath and go, okay, slow wave of the hand underneath. Like I would just, like you would learn. <laughs> and then of course you'd need that to be the only sink available. Um, right. <laughs> you can't just go to the next sink. But I um, think, you know, I think you're right. I think conceptually thinking of it as teaching them how to gain access to reinforcement by offering self-control and will you need to operationalize self-control for yourself, for your situation? Right. right. Is it? Um, and maybe maybe also it's it's as simple as putting that into the animals, the, the dog's behaviors that it goes through. Like maybe when I want something, I first try to get it. And then if I can't get it, then I offer self-control. So putting that into the repertoire behavior. So it's not just I get frantic and I try to do the thing or, or get the thing, yeah. but offering, oh, I, I really hate calling stuff not doing, but offer, offering that whatever we want to operationalize. Right. Well, it's like offering the opposite of that. Yes. What are the other behaviors? Yeah. Right. We want that to have value um, for life skills and for sport training. I also want to point out a couple examples that are not yeah. efficient training. Okay. Okay. So um, let's take, go back to the example of the dog jumping on us and we want to put external control on the dog. So the dog is feeling that they want to jump and we say sit. So we're putting external control on the dog and we're, we're saying sit. We've essentially, and we've all seen this, created a behavior chain. Uh, first I jump on my owner and then they say sit and then I sit and then I get the affection. So we're not getting rid of the jumping up. So my experience has been that when I ignore the jumping up and don't give any attention to it, and attention can be just in the form of telling the dog to do something. So cueing them to sit even without the food. When I ignore and the dog learns again to offer the behavior, then I get rid of the jumping and it has a much less, um, it, it is, it, there's always a, examples out there where it still will be a behavior chain depending on learned history, but has much less chance of becoming the behavior chain. And usually the dog just skips straight to the offering to get the, the affection, offering the, the calmness instead of jump, then sit. Does that make sense? Yes. As a good example? Yes, it's a great example. And where people go wrong here is they wait for the problematic behavior to occur before they give that cue. Yes. Right, you could teach them that the cue of you walking in, it means sit. Right. But you need to do it by being ahead of the game. Right. Okay, so that's actually, so that's actually a good point. Okay, so that is teaching, but but you're teaching the cue of you walking in. So is that any different? Okay, so we we could be kinder, or I keep saying kinder. We could be. We could split it down to teaching the cue of you get my affection of me walking or coming through that door, or me walking near your your X pen or whatever equals. Um, we could command sit or cue sit. The dog already knows how to sit, and we don't get any of the jumping behavior until we do it. Is that the same thing? Because we've been very intelligent and we've trained that cue. Is that the same thing as letting the animal do the problematic behavior, the jumping? and waiting for them to offer. Is setting up the scenario to where you cue sit before they ever jump the same as letting them jump first? Or are you asking, are the other scenarios the same, the chain? 
um, forget about the chain. What I'm talking about is, is the concept of self-regulation apply to? Yeah. To the dog, to, to the dog responding to the cue instead of doing the thing that they wanted to do. Instead of offering it. I think that that. But what happens is if a clever trainer. I don't know the answer to. I'm going to, it, maybe we'll get to the answer if we think about a situation where allowing the dog to jump all over you is not possible. So you're going to set up a scenario in which that behavior isn't allowed to happen. For instance, there are a lot of dogs in animal shelters that when they live in the shelter, anytime a person walks in the run, they climb up the body, they mount the arms, they're frantic because they are deprived of human interaction. Um, and, you know, myriad other reasons that they're doing that. You could put up a barrier leash, tie them back, X-pen barrier, yep. et cetera. I still think in that moment, asking for the sit and having them give you the sit does require self-regulation on their part. I think I what's different still... is there's less, there's, I think what's different is that you're not putting the dog in an extinction trial, you're telling them the answer. Right, so it's still, so that's how we could train that and help the dog and train that. Now, it's interesting you say that because I still would let the dog climb all over the X-Pen uh -huh. that I would yeah. um, and discover that paws off the X-Pen got me to step forward well, and come closer forward. to the X-Pen, touch the X-Pen, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think we would need, I think it would be, first of all, situationally dependent, but if we had like the same dog, similar genetics, similar backgrounds. Right how would we know right <laughs> we're really going on a rabbit hole here because how would we know that this dog can self-regulate because he was put in extinction trials and this dog can't because he was told what the answer is right that'd be interesting i don't think we know the answer to that no i don't think we do i mean i think anecdotally i'm gonna say that i want the dog to offer it instead of being told the answer mm -hmm. but i can also say that even if I'm saying that I'm going to tell the dog the answer, I'm actually going to then, I, I'm going to tell the dog the answer, tell the dog the answer, and on trial number 20, I'm going to wait. Yeah, there's going to come a time when I say, and now do you know the answer? Right. And so, and I and think so does that count? The reality is that the reason is the outcome we need is the dog choosing that answer. Right without being told. And so right. if the reality is that that's what you need, then are then shouldn't you train that by, yes, you could absolutely tell them the answer, tell them the answer, tell yeah. them the answer, but then wait, see if they know the answer. We train other things like that. Right, we train answers, we train things like that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that this is, I think this is applicable. So my two dogs, um, one genetically self-regulates really well, really easy. I'm going to give you a common bite sport scenario. Dog is back tied and wants, wants the bite, knows how to bite, likes toys, likes to tug. Mm -hmm. um, helper is, might have done some frustration of the dog making it miss or whatever. And one of my dogs will go very quickly to um, lying down. Yeah. Uh, he'll actually offer the down. So you frustrate him, you frustrate him. He's back tied, he can't reach it. He offers the down. 
And the way he offers it down is he offers it down and his mouth is closed and he's focused and still and waiting for that bite. He's okay? your cat. Yeah, he's your cat. He's yes, he's capped. And he's learned that the the all the misses and, and getting against the thing doesn't work. Okay. So very quickly he went into that and he I would call it he capped himself. He self-regulated himself to get what he wanted. Okay. And the appearance is still and calm. Now, my other dog would never, ever, ever offer that. He would bark his head off, you know, and he would still be pulling against the thing. And like work himself into a mess, right? He'd be sad. Yes, uh, very much a hot bloodshot. He would yes. be worn out. He could not work anymore, you know? Yes, yeah. one rep. He would never offer. And when he finally did offer it, it wouldn't be calm and still towards it. He wouldn't be self-regulating. So it's very interesting to me now because once he's the second dog where he, he found it very hard to self-regulate. And now that I am not training ones as much as I could, I am noticing that all those self-control behaviors are disappearing. Like all the stuff that I have taught him, given him the answer, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you do sit in that situation, okay? are disappearing because I'm not maintaining those concepts in his life. So he needs those concepts constantly, constantly. Minded, whereas if you stopped training Talik, he would just naturally still do it. You wouldn't need, right. The maintenance. Yep. You would need the maintenance and it's kind of anything else that is hard for them. If right. it's hard for them, it needs maintenance. Right. If it's easy for them, it doesn't. Right. So for the people listening, if you have a hard dog that doesn't self-regulate, think of easy things you can do to put that into your dog's routine, like still at the door or whatever. And by the way, I do want to yeah, say down, to people. Down stay in eye contact before I take your leash off on the trail. I mean, yeah. like I do so many things of like, buy yourself that thing that you want by offering me. Rhea just had a real hard lesson about it the other day. It's probably the first time yeah. that Leslie actually met me for a hike and her two boys are like wild in the beginning of the hike and I'm afraid they're gonna run into Iggy. So I was like, you just go down the trail and I'll meet you. But that meant that I had Iggy, Felix, Rhea, and also Stig who's, he's almost 10 and he's perfect. Um, so that wasn't a big deal. Um, all on leash in the parking area with me Felix, Iggy, Stig, perfectly capable. They're doing a downstay. I'm actually feeding them for it. They're being wonderful. And Rhea is like, are you kidding me? Right. This can't be the case. They are, and she's screaming. And she, I mean, she was like, and I yeah. actually kept, and this is maybe, gosh, another rabbit hole we could even go down because I tend to feed approximations of the thing mm -hmm. that I'm not actually going to give you access for that. Yeah. I'm almost going to feed you to let you know you're, that's the right track. But I also use food a lot as far as like, I need you to feed, I need you to eat all the time under high arousal situations. And it's, that's almost a test too, for my dogs of like, if yeah. you don't eat, you don't get to run down the trail. Right. Right. Which is a whole, we, we can tell you another podcast. Gosh, we can talk that. for three hours about this. And finally she gave up yeah she put it down yep and, I and went, then you let her off and, and you had perfect timing that's right 
<laughs> I went off leash down you go like I mean yeah. and and so you say that's a hard lesson I say that is a necessary lesson I think it's both and it is and it is a hard lesson but it is going to benefit you in sports behaviors and the next time you prevent her from getting reinforcement it's going to be quicker she's going to under she's already going to have that that one rep under her belt and she's going to go okay this is something i try absolutely and i'm even so i try it. the giving up yeah i think i'm even um seeing it in some other situations where she's like oh that thing that's really, because the other thing is running with the other, other dogs grew in value. Yes. Right? And so now that that's pretty high value to her, we had to have a talk about it. <laughs> right. So again, back to our beginning of the reinforcement has to be really valuable to the dog. Um, I think where this catches people in sports off guard is that when we are training sports, oftentimes at first, I mean, just to uh, take agility, for instance. At first, your dog's just learning the the game. They don't really know it. Okay, they don't care so about it yet. it's the exact same thing. Right. So, and then all of a sudden, they're like, "Oh my gosh, we're going to agility class." Oh wow, I love this. Yes. And all of a sudden, you can't get your dog out of the car without them screaming. I would say that ninety nine percent of the dogs that come to me for I'm putting this in quotations arousal problems around right. agility. Right. That moment when the dog went, oh, I really like this. Right. The person did not take that as an opportunity. To have that hard have conversation. The conversation. That I had with Rhea at the trail. Exactly. And chances are that dog also does not have the rep at the trail that it should have before you go to the sport related. They just open the back of the car and the dog right. runs down the trail. Right. So, but yeah. that's an important thing. And, and so, so when I'm talking about things like this, this is my dogs are getting reps at those oh, yeah. moments so that when it comes to, for my dogs is getting on the protection field, I pause and my dog's like, oh yeah. <laughs> I really like this, but, but, oh yes, I can, I can not be realizing yeah. at this moment. They've learned many, many times when you are like, Hey, I know you want that thing, but can you give me eye contact? Can you, right. you know, whatever that they should offer it or they're not going right. to get the thing. Right. Um, and it, I mean, it circles back. It is everything. If you don't take those opportunities and go, Ooh, my dog cares about this a lot. Therefore, I'm going to make sure that they're capable of proving to me that they can have it. Think of it as my dog really wants this. They're, they're, they're very motivated to get it. Their arousal is spiking. They're going way up. Can they offer stillness to get that? Yes, totally. Can they? Yeah. And you have to teach them that concept <laughs> before you bring it to agility class next week. Right. And so the key words are the dog has to like, be motivated for whatever they, you're, you're restraining them from and has to know how to offer that behavior of stillness. Has to be in the repertoire. That we've called things like giving up or calm or whatever. But I think really what it is is stillness. It's stillness. It's stillness. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Who? All right, Shade, we could go on and on, but. We could. We both have 
the rest of our day to get to. So where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? So my website is shadesdogtraining.net, okay. not .net. Um, and I can be found on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and I am an FDSA instructor. So if you want access to me class-wise, it's usually through FDSA. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do do a lot of free videos on my Instagram. Short little slices. Do. Of- they're, they're good. So I'll link your website yeah. and your Instagram um, in the show notes. And just because I'm thinking of it, when are you offering crucial concepts again? You know? That's not a good question. Um, because <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I, I put it off for a little bit. So I actually think I'm not offering it till August or I mean, till October. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I just want to give it a plug. So when Thank it you. does run again, because a lot of what we just talked about. Yes. Is there. Yes. In a class format that you can get help with and it doesn't matter how old your dog is. It's a foundation class, but like if you're missing foundations, take a foundation class, not yeah. an advanced skill class. I, yeah, for Foundation sure. is not a dirty word. No, it's everything, right? We need it. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you. All well, right. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks, Shay. Yeah. This was so fun. I actually think I got clear about a couple of things that I, that were maybe kind of muddy in my head. So good. <laughs> Very good. All right. Thanks so much. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.